Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we will finish up Genesis chapter 3 by the grace of God today. Um, It's been a great chapter to be looking into, and I would like to just open in prayer and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, thank you so much for your word and how you have informed us of why the world is the way that it is. When we look at you as God Almighty, uh, some are caused to question how can such evil be present in this world, and we are answering that question. You have answered that question by sharing with us what took place in the garden when Eve first took of the fruit and then gave to her husband and he ate of it. Lord, we pray that you would just break our own hearts as we are all falling short of your glory. Not fallen, but falling day by day. Even those that are redeemed, Father, we continually fall short of the glory that you have prepared for us to be those that are made in your image. And we long for the day when we will be free to be who you created us to be now newly in Christ Jesus. We pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to, just by way of review, read verses 6 through 13, which we covered last week. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it its fruit and she ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so we looked in depth at the sin committed. And today we're going to look a little bit deeper into this whole context here. But just by way of a review, we see the sin of Adam and Eve, especially in verse 6. And we see that there were at least three things that snared the woman in the garden. She saw that the tree was good for food. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, and she considered it desirable to make one wise. Over in 1 John 2.16, we understand that Eve's temptation truly came from without. That serpent was tempting her and deceived her, but she processed the whole thing in her heart. She thought through these things. Now, Temptation comes through three avenues, we're told in 1 John 2.16. The lust of the flesh, she saw that the fruit was good for fruit. And the lust of the eyes, it was a delight to her eyes, it says. And then the boastful pride of life, she considered that it was able to make her wise to salvation. Or what she thought was salvation, (laughs) being greater than what God created her to be. Now, the woman was deceived, but Adam wasn't, I said last week. And it was not Adam who was deceived, 1 Timothy tells us, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The couple's behavior was bold and clear disobedience to God. He went into the sin with his eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing. She was deceived. But whether deceived or not, both Adam and Eve sinned, and their sin can be seen in at least two distinct features. They both disobeyed the revealed will of God. 
They both knew that God said, don't eat of this tree at the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. They both knew that. And so they disobeyed that revealed will of God and ate. Secondly, they obeyed Satan by believing his lies. Rather than believing God and obeying him, they believed Satan and obeyed him. Obedience and belief are linked, aren't they? They're linked together. Now they ate from the tree and immediately the effect came upon them. When the man and woman realized that they had sinned, God asked, or um, their first experience when they sinned against God was to feel naked. Mistakenly thinking it was mere outward problem, the couple sewed fig leaves to cover their loin. But that sense of nakedness did not leave. And it's interesting when you look at that When God comes to him and he says, who told you that you were naked? He immediately says, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Somehow, and it's not expressed in the scripture, somehow eating from that tree, God knew that it would make them feel naked. He knew that their conscience would suddenly become guilty. And that's exactly what did take place. And even though they covered or tried to cover that sense of nakedness that they felt, it was not adequate by any stretch. Now, the effect of their sin seen in verses 7 through 13, besides that immediate sense of guilt that they were naked, uh, there are other implications. First, obviously, is death. God said, the day that you eat of it, you will die. And yet, Adam lived past 300 years old, Uh, We're not told how old he was when he took of the fruit and ate of it, but uh, it it seems that he went on for many years afterwards. So what kind of death? It has to be spiritual death. And I've taught you that death in the Bible, you can always equate it with separation. And so, yes, physical death is when the soul, that eternal part of man, leaves the body and separated from the physical body. That is not the death they immediately experienced. It was spiritual death where their soul and their relationship with God who is eternal life was separated. They were no longer together with God. And that was the reason for feeling that guilt and that sense of nakedness. Secondly, guilt, concern for their outward nakedness was symptomatic of an inner spiritual problem, that of a guilty conscience, and their efforts were futile because the fig leaves had no power to cleanse their guilty conscience. Those fig leaves, I mean, I could preach a month of Sundays on just those fig leaves. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The righteous act, they're trying to cover themselves up. Uh, Men have been doing that since the garden. They do good works. They do things to balance off the bad that they're aware of what they do. They know their sin. They know they're guilty. And they try to cover that up by doing good things. But God's word in Isaiah says we all shrivel up. Like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. They sweep us away. So that guilt was the second sense that they had, death and then guilt. And alienation, alienation caused from their first sin manifest in a couple's foolish attempt to hide themselves from God in the garden. Sin is a corrupting factor and it corrupts not only spiritually, but mentally as well. What were they thinking? He's God. They're going to hide from the creator God? Well, they tried to because of their fear. Where are you? Notice it was God who initiated the conversation. Adam did not run to God and go, God, where are you? Where are God? God, help us. God had to come to the man and seek him out. Where are you? It wasn't man, because Adam hid. And apart from God, people always run away from him. And if you take this track and you start giving it out to people, you're going to be able to see that. 
as you talk to them about God and you talk to them about Jesus Christ, many will run the other way and they might not say nice things to you, (laughs) even though you're bringing them good news. But see, that should not affect you or stop you from doing that because that is a natural bent of men to run away from God. And it's only by God activating their own inner thoughts that they will turn and start seeking God. Seek God while he is near, while he may be found, Isaiah 55 tells us. So, there is alienation. Fourthly, there's fear. Adam's response to God's call was, I was afraid. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. Truth of the matter is, he was not naked. Not in the sense of he had fig coverings, but that wasn't doing it, was it? It was an epic failure. There is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And the man and the woman's efforts to cover their sin and its results upon them was an epic failure. It did not work. And they were filled with fear. Uh, That song that we sang by Newton, what is it? All mankind fell in Adam's fall. Wow. The words in there are great. Because can you just imagine how great the fall was? This is Adam and the woman, God's first creatures. They were created in his image. They were the, the crown of his creation. And they met with him. In the cool of the garden, they were not afraid. They enjoyed his fellowship. And then all of a sudden they sin, and now they run and hide and cower in fear with a guilty conscience. How great that fall. Denied responsibility. In a sense, this result of sin is a display of further alienation, first between God and man, and now between the man and the woman. Because the very first thing that Adam did when God called him up was, it was the woman that you gave to me <laughs> that gave me the apple, or gave me the fruit, and I sinned. And then when he goes to the woman, the woman says, the servant deceived me. Now that's true in both cases, but that is not what God was looking for. He was giving them an opportunity to come clean, to confess, and they didn't. And that's covered in that song as well. They didn't beg for mercy. They were proud and they were stubborn and they blame shifted away from themselves. Get the spotlight off of themselves. Yeah, those of us with children know this well. Who did this? Everybody but I did it. I'm sorry. Right? Kids, they have a propensity to blame shift. It was my little sister. You know how she is. No, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. Praise me for my, my self-control. But the, wood, the woman didn't do any better, did she, than Adam, because God addressed her saying, what is this you have done? And she just blamed the serpent. Now, why did God approach them. He gave them opportunity. This is all grace. They did not deserve that. But he approached them. And what is he going to do with what they did? Because they sinned. They rebelled against him. Clearly. Well, that's what's in the sermon for today. Let me read to you, beginning in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat, and the days of your life, all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. So first, God addressed the serpent. His words to the serpent are found in verses 14 and 15. He was going deeper than the shell that Satan used for his own evil purposes, that of a serpent. And while it's true that the serpent would be consigned to go on its belly from that time forward, there's more to God's pronouncement on the serpent. It's kind of like those sections that we read in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, right? About that king, the king of Tyre. And, and really what it was talking about is the devil, but there, he was using something else. And, and this foil of the serpent, the serpent as an animal was cursed. The fact that God said the serpent would be cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field indicates that they would also be cursed. You see, it's not just the serpent. It's the entire animal kingdom. All creation was affected by the couple's sin as attested to in Romans 8.20, which shows the creation was subjected to futility. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself, all will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So the entire creation was affected by Adam and Eve's sin. And it groans, waiting for its redemption, and it's all wrapped up with the glory of the children of God. In the midst of the curse, it's, A wonderful ray of hope comes out. God's word is always so balanced. Everywhere it's balanced. This is an incredible pronouncement on the serpent. And the pronouncements that he gave to the man and then to the woman are very sobering. But even in the midst of that, there is hope. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. One commentator wrote this, quote, The woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. Seed could not be a reference to her offspring in general, because the expression translated, He shall bruise your head in 3.15, clearly refers to a specific individual. So we know from the rest of Scripture that the fulfillment of the promise itself, that this can only be a reference to Christ, the incarnate Son of God. He was the promised seed of the woman. And although the serpent would bruise his heel, causing suffering and pain, he, Christ, the woman's seed, would crush the serpent's head, signifying a fatal blow. So this is the first indication that God is actually not only going to enter into Adam and Eve's sin, but he is going to enter into the problem of mankind's sin and the sin that goes on from Adam and Eve. Original sin. And it's good news of God's salvation from sin and its consequences. In the midst of this pronouncement is the first glimmer of hope. There's going to be a coming deliverer. Somebody is going to get us out of this mess. And it's what Paul referred to in Romans 16, 20. As he encouraged the Romans, he said, the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Satan will face utter destruction, it's true. And that spells eternal hope for God's people. Christ dealt the death blow to him on the cross, but the full realization of the implications of the cross for this devil and his doom waits till he's cast into the lake of fire which we can read about in Revelation 20, verse 10, which says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell was created for the devil and the angels that followed him. But those 
of mankind who follow and submit themselves to the devil will also find themselves in that place that was prepared for them, which is hell. Now God's word to the woman, his curse on the serpent, reminds us of a beautiful thing that's coming, of deliverer that will deliver us. His words to the woman will continue to bear that out. Bearing children in compliance with God's desire for the couple to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth was a command that God gave to the couple before they sinned. Remember? He told them, be fruitful and multiply. It's a creation mandate. So the fact that pregnancy and birth cannot be construed as part of the curse. Now, again, parents, some days we feel like it definitely is. And those of you that have had the joy of being pregnant, there are times during the pregnancy and definitely during the deliverance where you think, this is definitely part of the curse. Well, the pain is. The pain is. Not the birth itself and not the pregnancy. Because of sin now, the woman and all women would include the experience of pain in childbirth. And the same word used in God's word to Adam when he said, this, in toil. Toil is the same Hebrew word as pain is that the woman would experience. In toil you will eat of the food that you gather. And they have to gather food prior to the fall. But now, seemingly after the fall, there would be toil involved. They, had, they were supposed to be fruitful and multiply before the fall. But now, in carrying out God's creation mandate, there is something attached to it because of the fall. And that's pain in childbirth. But there's another element here in the word to the woman that God pronounced upon her, and that's the compelling desire of the woman to rule. Another element in God's pronouncement to the woman tells her that from now on, she would chafe under her husband's authority. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And when she began her conversation with the serpent and in the end took from the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband, she in effect reversed God's divine role for her. She took the lead. But Adam also failed miserably as he reversed God's God-given role to him. He listened to the voice of his wife passively following her lead. We'll talk about that in a moment, but we're talking about the woman. And so began the war of the sexes, actually, right there. The the question swirls around our understanding of what is the woman's desire in the latter part of verse 16. It says, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I would say up until... I'll be generous. Up until 50 years ago, it was understood that that desire was a sexual desire. That even though she bore children and had pain in childbirth, she would still desire relations with her husband. And a couple commentaries that I was reading in preparation for this week said nymphomania is the the epitome of that. The truth of the matter is, in, in just general marriages and so forth, this does not bear out. And it's just not typical. That is not typical at all. And so there must be some other understanding, and there is. I believe God provides the answer to this question of what that desire actually means right in chapter 4 of Genesis, the very next chapter. Look at chapter 4, verse 7 where we have God warning Cain about his anger, about God's acceptance of Abel and his uh, his, uh, sacrifice, yet uh, rejecting Cain's. In 4.7 it says, God talking to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance, your face, be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Exact same word as in 3.16. So why would the word in such close proximity have such a different kind of meaning? God tells Cain, if you do what's right, you'll not be, will you not be accepted? 
It's sin. It's at your door and it desires to have you. But you must master it. So the traditional interpretation of the word desire in 3.16 is completely different. In Genesis 4, the word desire means to have, to rule, to rule over. Sin wants to rule over you, Cain, but you need to not let that happen. But the traditional meaning given in the words of word desire in 3.16 is to submit. That even though you suffer in childbearing and so forth, you still desire those relations which will only end in pregnancy again, so you must submit to that. It's a wrong interpretation, people. It's that there is a desire, a compelling desire to rule. One commentator and a woman at that sees it this way, quote, the woman has the same sort of desire for her husband that sin has for Cain. It's a desire to possess or control him. This desire disputes the headship of the husband. And as the Lord tells Cain what he should do, i.e., master or rule sin, the Lord also states what the husband should do, rule over his wife. Now these words mark the beginning of the battle of the sexes, as I mentioned. And as a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. It's hard for us to lead like we have been created to do. And it's just as hard for the woman to submit as God created her to be a helpmeet. Sin messed us up. (laughs) Messed us up royally. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. How does a husband respond to this, this desire of the wife, a compelling desire, I might add, for her to rule over him? Well, he either becomes very aggressive in asserting his leadership, sometimes even to physical aggression against the woman, and that's wrong. But most of the time, he does what Adam did. It's kind of like, yes, dear, if he even says that. He just passed, he passively wimps out. That's how he deals with that pressure on him from his wife to rule over him instead of leading, he wimps out or he becomes very, very unkind in words and sometimes even physically. And both are wrong. The woman trying to rule over the husband is wrong and the husband being mean to the woman in response to that is wrong or being a wimp and not leading is wrong. Both are wrong because of sin. The woman's desire is to control her husband, to usurp his divinely appointed headship, and he must master her if he can. So the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle, tyranny, and dominion. That's the end of the quote. Her name is Susan Foe, and um, she's, she's written some good stuff on women's ministry, and this is taken from an article entitled, What is the woman's desire? It's in uh, Westminster Theological Journal, if you want to look that up. What is the woman's desire? It's a well-written article. I just quoted a paragraph out of it. So, since the fall, the woman chafes under the husband's authority, and men lead harshly, or they're passive and wimp out. The Bible teaches something totally different. And, and this is that balance, that wonderful balance that God has in his word. We're in a mess, right? We see that leadership, man, has been exemplified for us by Christ, and it is servant leadership. This is so hard. Why? Because of sin. It has nothing to do with our personalities, guys. Nothing at all. Servant leadership, the responsibility of the wife toward her husband, as well as the husband's godly leadership over his wife, are impossible because of sin. Right? We know that. Uh, The scriptures tell us that. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible, and there is the hope. There is the hope. It's only by the transforming of an individual's heart and attitude by the gospel that there is hope. It's by the power provided by the indwelling Holy Spirit that 
enables wives to freely and willingly and joyfully submit to their own husbands, even when they're wrong. Yeah, I said that. Because <laughs> we are not perfect. But that doesn't give you the excuse. You can apply. You can say, ah, honey, did you consider this and that and the other thing? I mean, we'll go with what you're suggesting and wanting to do, but really? And it's so hard when we say, that's what I want to do. And then it's wrong. It's so hard for our dear wives to not say, see? It's even harder for us to go, honey, you were right on that one, man. I missed it by a mile. I did that once. (laughs) That I can remember in spades because I was so humiliated. And it happened in Indonesia and I wanted to have a dog, and there was this little puppy, and it was, it was being terrorized by a German shepherd in the family in town, and I said, you know, I'll take that little puppy off your hands. It was, it was hiding under, under tables and stuff from the German shepherd, and German shepherd wasn't really attacking it. It was just kind of walking and, and you know, covering its ground, right? And the, and the little puppy just kind of hid under the chairs and the tables and the benches, and my wife said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, that, that's a lot of work. That dog's damaged. Ah, no, 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 we can do it. So we took the little dog. Joe, just never mind here. Joe probably remembers this little puppy. But that dog was damaged. It hid. It continued to hide. No, no German shepherds in the tribe, but it would hide under the stairs. And we had stairs that were made of bamboo, and we leaned it against the house. And, and you could see through it, and it would hide underneath those stairs. And when tribal people would come up to talk to us, you know, they'd say, hey, John Denama, and the dog would race out, bite him on the, sh- on, the, on the calf, and then I would come out, and the guy's screaming, going, ow! And he's pointing, and the dog would be sitting under. <laughs> Actually, we had to put that dog down. And so it was very hard for me to say, you were dead on on that one. And I did, but it was very hard to say. Well, that's me fighting against sin. You think fighting against sin is easy? It's not. That's why we need the power of the Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Right? That's how much power it takes for us to humble ourselves, men. Ladies, I'm not going to go there because I'm not a lady. But you need that same enabling power by the Spirit of God. It is not natural for us. What's natural is for the women to want to rule over her husband and for the men to respond either passively or aggressively. And it should be neither. You see, the Holy Spirit allows wives to freely, willingly, joyfully submit to their own husbands. And it's only by that same transforming power that the man is able to lovingly, kindly, and sacrificially lead his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is the answer to the fall. Now, that's God's word to the woman. Here's God's word to the man. Adam's role reversal and its consequences. Notice the backdrop to everything that God says is right at the beginning, right? As he's talking to the man, what does he start out with? He says, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That was the crux of the matter. Now, this, that word listen in the Hebrew is often interpreted to mean obey. Because you obeyed the voice of your wife. That's what it's talking about. Because you obeyed the voice of your wife, this is what's happening. So Adam literally took his, his lead from the woman and he obeyed her direction. She gave to her husband and he ate This abandonment of his headship is the first thing that God pointed out to Adam because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Adam's role reversal was that of following his wife rather than leading her. He should have said, no, stop it. Now, I've had a lot of fun imagining what that scene must have looked like. I personally believe, because of the pronouns that are in this section of Scripture, that he was with her the entire time. And it actually even says that, her husband with her. But I think even before that, during the temptation, I think he was right there with her. And so I've 
speculated in my mind, and this is pure speculation, but I think Eve must have been something to behold. And he already knew that there is nobody in all of creation that was suitable for him, and then he wakes up and he sees Eve. And in Hebrew, it's an exclamation, wow, this is woman. And I don't think he was willing to risk pushing back on her, and he just submitted to her. Guys, is it important to lead? Yes. Look what happened. Look what happened with Adam because he didn't lead. This abandonment of his headship is the first thing that God pointed out. The far reachings and effects of that sin can be seen by the initiation of the deterioration of all things. That's how important that was. Henry Morris, a creation scientist, said it this way, quote, It seems unlikely that God actually either created or made thorns and thistles at this time. I like that. He did not create death in the direct sense, but rather withdrew that extension of his power, which had maintained a steady state of life and order, thus allowing all things gradually to disintegrate toward disorder and death. Now, some of you that are science-prone, in terms of modern genetic knowledge, such changes probably were in the form of mutation, random changes in the molecular structure of the genetic systems of the different kinds of organisms. The second law of thorough dynamics is at play here. That's what we call it. It states that all systems, if left to themselves, tend to become uh, degraded and disordered. And isn't that exactly what happens? I have things that I've left out in my yard, in the back. I have a large yard, and some of it's mown and some of it isn't. And I've left things out in the back part that isn't mown. And first, I can barely find it because the weeds have all grown over it and everything. But secondly, rust started taking over the thing that I just left out there. Left to themselves, left to, and this is true of organisms as well. It's why we die. This then is the true origin of the strange law of disorder and decay, the universally applicable law, the second law of thermodynamics. Herein is the secret of all that's wrong with the world. Man is a sinner and has brought God's curse to the entire earth, not just to man and not just spiritual. This is amazing because that's why God needs to completely decimate this first creation and recreate the heavens and the earth. That's how bad their sin was. Wow. So God's judgment on their sin affects the whole earth. The earth is cursed. Adam would still have the creation mandate to rule over the earth, to cultivate and garden and keep it, but... Now the earth would not yield her produce without man's sweat and toil. He'd struggle to even maintain his physical existence. There would be pain and suffering because of the continual disappointment with the earth's yield. Thorns will be present as a hindrance to Adam's work moving forward. Secondly, there's going to be sweat and toil. Some equate the sweat mentioned here with tears at the futility of his intense labor and low yield. (laughs) It's hard work being a farmer. And you don't always get the kind of yield that you would like to have, no matter how much work you put into it, because a lot of it has to do with the rain and the sun. Job said this, Does not man have hard service on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired man, like a slave longing for the evening shadows, or a hired man waiting eagerly for his wages. The picture is of someone who does not own that which what they're working for. It's another man's property. And and the comeback to him, he just wants the quiet and the calm and the cool of a shadow at the end of the day. He doesn't work for the joy of working this property or whatever. He, He works so they can have enough to eat. And it's by the sweat of his brow. And he's eager for his wages. That's all because of sin. 
and there'll be a physical death. This, this wraps it up, doesn't it? Look at what he says at the end. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread, verse 19, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Physical death is to be the direct result of sin, just as God said it would be. It didn't come immediately. Spiritual death did, but physical death surely followed. His word can and should be trusted, for he is a source of truth. God warned them. God told them ahead of time. He warns us and tells us ahead of time. Both Adam and the woman died spiritually as soon as they ate from the prohibited tree. And now we see that their physical death, separation of their soul from their physical body, would take them as well. The New Testament sums this up succinctly in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, it's united. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Next week we'll be going into Genesis chapter 4, and we'll see how sin spread from Adam and Eve to their children, and then on from there. So just in closing the last portion here, hope and a severe mercy in verses 20 through 24, we see the mercy of God in the direct face of sin. God's mercy seen as Adam names the woman Eve. Look at verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Huh? I mean, we're just talking about all God's words of judgment, first on the serpent, then on the woman, then on the man. And yet, and yet, Adam knew the character of his creator. Now, we have to read between the lines here, and even further, we'll see in just a moment that God created something brand new for him, coats of skins to cover him. But God's grace was running strong. Adam knew it, and he named his wife the mother of all living. That was faith. That was faith that God was not going to completely decimate them and take them off the face of the earth. Secondly, God's mercy in provision of a covering for, for sin. Obviously, the couple's effort to close themselves was unacceptable and, and unfruitful. So Yahweh Elohim, in a display of his continued intimate relationship with him, notice in that little section, Yahweh Elohim is mentioned repeatedly. Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh referring to his intimate relationship, his covenant name with mankind. Yahweh El- Elohim prepared something. He made garments of skin. And then it says, and he clothed them. Isn't that kind of reminiscent of he bending down and breathing the breath of life into the nostrils of the man? What a God. What a God we worship. And we only know not even, I don't have the decimal points. I can't put that stuff together. We know him very, very little, folks. Adam knew him better than we knew him, called his wife Eve, and then God clothed them. Only God could provide an adequate covering. And, and this merciful act of God records the very first physical death. The very first death, so they know what they've got coming to them now. And that of an innocent animal in place of guilty couple, and this but a dim reflection of future redeemer who would one day remove the condemnation of sin altogether. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, Hebrews tells us. Some people will say, oh, you know, don't talk about shedding of blood. It was a covering of skins. How do you get a skin off an animal without shedding blood? It's also the first record of substitutionary atonement. That animal did nothing. Okay? But it died. An innocent animal died in place of the couple who sinned and provided an acceptable covering for them. Do you know what the word atonement actually means? Atonement means covering. A covering. And God provided it for them. Thirdly, we see God's mercy in their expulsion from the garden. This is a severe mercy. It begins, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, 
the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. So he drove the man out. And this is amazing. It's difficult to see the mercy in being driven from the Garden of Delights, but it was certainly so because God did not want the man and woman to live in perpetual state of separation from him. This is clear when he said, lest he stretch out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever. God protected humanity from an eternity of separation from himself by preventing them from the tree of life. But we see in Revelation that there's a stream that runs through the sacred city and on either side there's a tree of life. The Taliabo, when we taught them that, they made a hymn so beautiful about the, the tree of life that gives forth, forth its fruit, fruit every Every month, every season. Beautiful. So wrapping things up, Genesis 3 brings a lot of insight into the person and character of God. But it also shows us something about humanity, doesn't it? Yahweh Elohim provided everything needed for a wonderful existence in the Garden of Delights, pronouncing only one prohibitive command, only one. The intimate care and concern of God showed the first couple is abundantly presented. He was generous of all the trees and he prepared everything for them. Yet we see the sad and disturbing account of the first couple turning away from God's love and provision and we see rebellion against his once prohibitive command and it jeopardized everything to follow their own thinking and desires even though they were directly denying the Creator's desires. That's what sin is. It's very simple. And God in His holiness was compelled to address the sin of Adam and Eve. His pronouncements at that time have been felt by humanity all the way to the present day. It's what's happening all around us. And yet Yahweh Elohim in His unimaginable grace provided a covering and a garment of skin whereby the innocent animal died in the place of the sinning couple. And they experienced redemption. And once again, note, God is the one that did it. They weren't asking for it. They weren't running to it. They weren't seeking it. God is the initiator of salvation. Don't forget that when you hand out these tracts and talk to people. Okay? you're not going to have a slick presentation that's going to persuade them into the kingdom of God. It's the gospel that's the power of God unto salvation. And short of him breaking into their thinking, they will not repent and believe. So you need to pray about that before you go out and give that out. Or as you're giving it to them, pray that God would open their minds. The interwovenness throughout the entire account We see this fallen angel, Satan, the serpent of old, the devil, tempting and enticing the couple to sin against God and suffer the inevitable consequence so clearly warned. Death. The devil's behavior in such a manner discloses what we read about him in other places of the Bible. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lying is bad. It's bad. And we see it everywhere present today. Everywhere. Bald-faced lying. You can see what's happening right here, and the mouth says, that's not happening right there. Everywhere, folks. True to his character, Satan hates God and everything that God loves, including the people that follow him. And he seeks only to destroy and to murder, and that includes God's crown of creation, mankind. So the stage is now set for the rest of the Bible. I could stop here. These are foundations that have been laid. But we're going to go further and see the implications as they play out when we study the story of Cain and Abel. And then we look at the great flood and the Tower of Babel. We're going to be looking at these things and seeing how this plays out because it plays out in a way that we can identify 
happening all around us today. The primary actor, Yahweh Elohim, is firmly in place. Humanity, represented by Adam and Eve in their high place in God's creation, created in his image yet sinful, are also in place. So we have those actors. And the enemy of God and all that God loves has also been introduced and will continue to be the ever-present antagonist throughout the rest of the Bible. What a story. (laughs) What a story. What an account. And how completely in sync with all that we observe around us, especially today. This is so pertinent. And, you know, I find it interesting that by God's leading, I chose to teach on foundations for you. And I've seen all over the place on Twitter, Instagram, um, other social media, there's a lot of talk about Genesis, a lot of talk about the fall, a lot of talk about the foundations. Do you know why? Because if the foundations are destroyed, what can a righteous do? Psalm 11.3. If the foundations are destroyed, and, and brothers and sisters, there is a frontal attack on the foundations. So let's pray and come back next week for Cain and Abel. Father God, thank you so much for this time that we've had together and your loving kindness, your goodness to us and the way that you have informed us ahead of time of things we would have no way of knowing had you not influenced the mind of Moses and shared with him so that he wrote it down for us in the Pentateuch that we have knowledge of the creation of all things and in how all things went wrong through the sin of Adam and Eve. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today that struggles with their salvation, are they born again like John said, just asking asking the simple question, are you born again? If you do not know if you're born again, talk to your parents. Talk to us as pastors. We, We want to explain to you and help you. And Father, we know that there are some that have been coming to church for a long time that, that just have been going along with things. Father, let them experience the full power of the redemption that is in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.